You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Okay. Uh, well, let me do a bit of recap of where we were last week, and then uh, we'll kind of catch up to where we are this week. So last week, uh, we had James teach us about the nature of temptation. You remember that? We were talking about temptation, that behind every temptation you and I experience, there is a lie that is crouching there. And that lie distorts our reality and and it leads us to take steps towards sin. And that lie is this. You remember, it was that God is not out for my good. That behind everything we've ever done, every sin we've ever committed, that lie crouches there, deceiving us and pushing us into sin. And and James refutes that idea. He he, he says that... that, uh, If we want to make war against our evil desires, that we need to preach a greater truth to our hearts, that that's what we have to do. And so he gives us that truth in in verse 17 of James 1. He says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. So he comes out the gate and he says, hey, the the truth that fights the lie is this. God is actually the, the origin of every good in your life. Right? Like, if it's good and it's come to you, it's come by the hand of God. That is who He is. It's fundamental to His nature. And you might respond to that, like we talked about last week. Okay, that's awesome, but uh, like, how do I. How do I know that's for real? Like, pr- prove to me that that is how he's like. James anticipates that question, and he says, okay, I'll prove it to you. The, the way I'm going to prove it to you is by this. Hey, Christian, he saved you. Right? It, you you're his. The proof is because he saved you. Look at verse 18. He says, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. We, we know God is out for our good because God did not withhold the one thing that was most precious to him in the universe, namely his son. He didn't withhold his son. He gave his son to us, for us, to buy us back. So how will he not also with him, like uh, Paul says in Romans 8, freely give us all things? He's a giver and he proved it in his son. If you're his, you can stand on the ground that that is a truth that, that is stable for us, that he is the origin of all good things. Now, he establishes this because he's about to change gears and get really practical with us again. Uh, James loves to do this in this book. And so you've got to see this thing before we go on. The reality of God rescuing us by his word, right? He, he, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that, that, that James 1.18 moment, that reality that he rescues us by his word, that is gonna be the linchpin to unlock everything else uh, James is about to say. And not really just in this next passage, it's gonna unlock like the whole thing of James. If you don't get the gospel, if you don't understand that God of his own will brought you forth by the word of truth that you're his by his own initiative, his, his loving grace poured out on you. If you don't get that his word rescued you, the, the rest is just going to feel like a lot of legalism. Uh, but that's not what's happening here. So hold on to that truth. Hold on to verse 18 because it's going to make sense of the rest. And, and, and here is James's main point in our passage today. In light of that, this is, this is his main point. So, so write this down if you've got a pen, paper. Here it is. A life that is changed is a life that shows change. That's it. Does that make sense? A, a life that is changed is a life that shows change. So, so that's what we're getting at. And it, there, there should be a difference in the life of a person for whom 118 has happened to them. There should be, if you, if you get a successful heart transplant, right, you should live a different kind of life after that moment than before that moment, right? If it goes well, you're going to be able to do things and live in such a way that you weren't able to live before. That's what he's saying. A life that is changed is a life that shows change. And we're going to see how that works in three parts. The location of change, the logic of change, and the liberty of change. So those are our three movements, the the location, logic, and liberty. Let's look at it, the location of change. Starting in verse 19, he says this. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce 
the righteousness of God. Before I say anything else, I just want to say there's a thousand amazing things to bring out of this passage that's coming up. I'm not going to capture all of it. We're going to capture what I think are the large meta themes and go from there. And we're going to hope that Ronnie comes back one day and preaches this again. Does that sound good? Okay, great. Uh, so so he, he just said, uh, uh, let everybody be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, uh, for the anger of man doesn't produce the righteousness of God. So th- that might feel, coming out of where we just came from last week, that might feel for us a little um, like a left turn, right? At first glance, like what, what's happening? Uh, we were just talking about God's gift of salvation as proof that he really is for us. Like that's what we were just talking about. And, and then we take this hard left turn and now we're talking about behaviors, like what we do and don't do. And in a sense, it, it kind of is like a, a hard turn. Uh, James does this all the time. If you've spent any time in James, you know James is, is a fan of like this way of writing. It's, uh, it's very proverbial. And you know what I mean by that? Like uh, if, you've, if you've ever read the Proverbs, you're going to be a big fan of James. If, you, if you're a fan of Proverbs, you'll be a fan here because um, the book of Proverbs is, uh, is a series of axioms and truths and, and pithy phrases that are all sort of categorized in that wisdom bucket, but they don't necessarily all connect one to another as you go. So in one moment, you're talking about greed. The next moment, you're talking about gluttony. The next moment, you're talking about lust. The next verse is about wisdom, and they don't necessarily all have a tie to each other, but they're all there, and they're all in sort of that bucket that is wisdom. And so James has some of that in him uh, when he writes, so kind of get used to it. It feels kind of random sometimes. That's James. Welcome, welcome to James. Uh, so he was just talking about trials and temptations. That's, that's last week. We hit verse 19 here, and, and he starts talking about the tongue, okay, Be, and being slow to speak. And he starts talking about avoiding sinful forms of anger. Now, th- these are themes that he's going to pick up on uh, later on in the book. So this is like his first foray into him. He's introducing these themes, and we're going to get way into detail on those in subsequent sermons. So uh, uh, definitely be around for those, because we're not doing that uh, today. Uh, but what is he doing here? James is, I think, giving us uh, in this moment some indicators of what a person who has been changed by the word of truth is like. Right? That, I think that if there's a tie here, it's that. He's come off the heels of like, hey, the, God's brought you forth by the word of truth. And now he, he walks into some behaviors and he's going, hey, this is one of the ways it looks like to, to live as somebody who's been changed by the word of truth. That, that we lean into these types of behaviors because uh, there is a way of living, he says, that does not produce the righteousness of God. Did you hear that phrase in there in, in verse uh, 19 and 20? So he says, be, be slow to anger. Verse 20, for the anger of man, he says, does not produce the righteousness of God. Now we're going to camp here for just a, a moment because uh, I think uh, we're due for some clarification here. This uh, Sentences like these, and I don't know how this hits you, uh, but it can hit you maybe funny. Sentences like these um, are going to happen all the time in James. Uh, anyone who hears that sentence, if you're, if you're really uh, thoughtful about it and you've maybe spent time in the rest of your Bible, uh, when you hear a sentence like that, that the anger of man doesn't produce the righteousness of God, some red flags should probably show up in you, right? Some, some alarms should be going off. Uh, and and it's the, I think it's the sensation of like, wait a minute. That seems to be saying that I have an ability in me to produce the righteousness of God. And that I just need to not do it in this way, not, not through sinful forms of anger, but there's probably other more productive ways that, that I can produce the righteousness of God. But isn't like the whole point of the Bible that like I can't do that? I thought that was like the punchline of this thing, right? That, that like I, I try to produce righteousness, I can't produce righteousness, and so I need a better righteousness. It's, it's Isaiah 64.6, right? Like, our righteous deeds are like filthy rags to God, or you get uh, Paul and Romans, now a righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, not through my doing, right? But through faith in Jesus Christ. So, so what do you mean, James? Do you see what I think? I think this is a predicament for us as you're reading James. Now, here, here is what I want to say. When you study your Bible, you need to have a category for categories. <laughs> you need to have a... 
that words get their meaning from the contexts they show up in. That's how words derive their meaning, from the context they show up in. And if we assume that we know what a word means from reading it in, say, one of Paul's letters, right? And then we smuggle that meaning over to our reading of James, right? Who wrote well before Paul wrote. That, that we got to be careful that we're not uh, m- misinterpreting James uh, by putting Paul on top of him. Do you see that? Uh, I... I don't watch Downton Abbey without subtitles. Let me be clear. I watch Downton Abbey, okay? I think that's the first thing to establish. But I don't watch it without subtitles. Why don't I watch it without subtitles? Uh, Is it because Downton Abbey's uh, not in English? No. It's very much in English. Uh, It just ain't my English, right? You feel me? I know we got some Downton fans here right now. It is a, what is Downton? It's a dialogue between different types of people in different contexts at a different time and different locations, emphasizing different things that my ear just isn't used to hearing. And it confuses this Texas brain of mine, right? I can't handle it, so I flip on the subtitles. And that's what James can feel like for some of us. Uh, that especially if we spent most of our time in, say, like uh, Paul's letters, Paul's epistles, uh, sometimes we can want to smuggle in some of, some of the meaning from other books in the Bible and put that on top of James and, and expect him to say what he's not meaning to say. You see that? And it doesn't mean that the Bible disagrees with, with itself. It just means we need to have categories for categories. So, so here's a helpful tip for the next three months. This is gonna make your life way better uh, over the next three months as we go through the book. As we work through these passages, and there will be plenty of difficult moments as we go, right? Ask yourself, am I assuming, am I assuming that I know the right category this word fits into? Am I, am I just assuming that when he says, like he's going to say in uh, chapter 2, that faith without works is dead, that I know what he means when he says faith? Am I projecting that onto him? Or do I have a category that he might be speaking in a, in a different dialect than, say, a Paul is? Okay? That's, <clears throat> that's what we got to be. You, you're going to be a lot happier of a person if you just ask yourself that question as we're studying James. Does that make sense for everybody? Yes? Yes? Okay, there we are. <clears throat> that being said, what is he talking about? <laughs> what, what, <clears throat> what, is he, what is he talking about? Uh, I think he's talking about this. I think he's talking about practical righteousness. That when he says that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God, that he's talking about practical righteousness, which is a different type of righteousness than, say, what theologians like to call forensic righteousness or that sort of declared righteousness over you that Paul loves to talk about, right? Like when Paul talks about righteousness, nine times out of ten, he's meaning it in the sense of um, the righteousness that I don't generate inside myself that comes from another source, Jesus Christ to me. It's put on me, imputed to me, so that I am now in a right standing before God. That's the type of righteousness Paul often has in mind. That's not what James has in mind. When James is talking about it here, he's talking about practical righteousness, uh, like actual, visible, behavioral ways of living that a Christian must, over time, display. Do you see the difference? It's a big difference, and it's important that we see this. This practical righteousness, it's, it's a process, right? Nobody, he's not claiming this happens overnight, but it does happen. And this is James's concern for his readers and for us in the text. It's that you and I would be moving ourselves toward a righteous life, toward a changed life. That would be the trajectory of our life as people who have been brought forth by the word of God, like verse 18 talks about. So he goes on, verse 21, therefore, he says, so therefore meaning like in light of wanting to live a changed life that produces righteousness, therefore, in light of that, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Put it away. He says, hey, in light of that, get rid of sin, y'all. Get rid of it. That, that, uh, that phrase, put away all filthiness, you might underline that. that. That phrase could actually be translated, take off all that's filthy. 
It's actually a word to, to evoke like a wardrobe change. Like uh, it's the image of like stripping off dirty, contaminated clothing. That's what he has in mind here. He's saying, hey, if you belong to Jesus, if Jesus is yours, uh, don't walk around dressed in sin. It doesn't make sense. It's unfitting for the person who's been changed by the word of God. Change out of the wardrobe of sin. That's what he's saying. Put, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. A, a, and then do what? What does he say next? You do that and this. And receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. This is what I mean uh, uh, when I said earlier that, that he shows us the location of change. Where, where does James say the location of change is in a person? Where does change begin in a human life? Answer, it begins inside of us where the word has taken root. That's where it begins. What's the location of change? Inside of us where the word has taken root. And we know this because James calls this the implanted word. Did you see that word there? Implanted word. Emphutos logon is the, is the Greek. And what he means is that this word isn't something that like I'm inviting you to encounter for the first time. I'm not inviting you to receive it like right now as if you've never met with it. This is a word that is already present in the heart of everybody who's ever trusted Jesus. It, it is already down inside you, implanted within us. It's the implanted word. The location of change is first in our hearts. That's the origin of it. God, uh, let me say it this way. God has to do an internal reformation in you before you can have an external reformation. And that's his point. That's why he says it's an implanted word. There has to be an internal reformation before there is an external reformation. Otherwise, nothing meaningful or, or pleasing to God is actually going to happen on the inside. It all has to, to have its genesis inside of us with the implanted word. And this is probably just a, a good time to, to pause and, and say this. Uh, if you're here, or, or probably more likely if you're watching uh, at home, uh, I, and, and you're, you're not a Christian, this is a great time for me to just acknowledge this. this. This place right here is where the Christian life starts. Like not, it doesn't start out here in my hands. Like it doesn't start with a reformation of my behaviors. It starts with a reformation of my heart. The word of God has to be implanted in you before anything out here is going to matter at all. So you can like do the cleanup thing and you can do like I'm going to stop drinking and smoking and sleeping around and you can do all of that stuff and still have a dead cold heart. And that's what's unique about about the, the news of Jesus about Christianity is that it doesn't put the emphasis mainly on the outside of the cup. It puts it on the inside of the cup. That's where the emphasis is, and that's what James is getting at when he's saying, when he's saying that it's the implanted word. So, so for you, the invitation is, is not to just clean up your life and like start living like a, a better, more uh, moral life in this world. It starts for you with, with looking with the eyes of faith at King Jesus. That's, that's where it begins. Looking at Jesus, the one who did the obedience on your behalf, recognizing that you have no good within yourself until he plants it there in you. So if that's you, you start the journey by trusting in what God has done for you. And then you let him give you that brand new heart. He, he, he plants the seed of his word inside of you. And then... Only then will you be able to see real change in your life. I, and I hope for somebody that that's clarifying because, man, religion gets it twisted out there in the world. And that's not the gospel. That, what I just said right there, that is the gospel. Okay. Now, before I keep going, I, I want us to see one more thing here. Um, look at this phrase with me because I, I, this whole week I found it so interesting. Um, he says this, uh, so we, we get rid of filthiness and rampant wickedness, and, and, and he says, we receive with meekness the implanted word. So that is the, the 
the verb that he attaches to what we do with this word. We receive with meekness the implanted word. Now, this confused me the first time I read it. I don't know when you read it if, you're, if that makes total sense. It probably does. I'm just uh, dense. But uh, when I read it, I, I was confused because my question is, how can I receive something if I already have it? That, that's what f- felt weird to me. If he says it's the implanted word, that means it's already inside me. But then James uses this language, you need to receive it. And that, that always felt a little cloudy for me. So let me just do some clarifying for like the one person who also felt confused like I did. What, what does that mean? Okay, well, when you press the text, here's what you find. That word meek, meekness there, in other parts of the New Testament, that same word is going to be translated as uh, courteous or humility. So when you think that word, think of the word like humble or humbleness, right? And then you get the the verb receive, like that's what we're to do. That that word receive could also be translated as welcome, like it is in John 4 when it said that the Galileans welcomed Jesus. So when I I put those two things together, it started to come together for me. You have this idea of humbly welcoming the implanted word. I don't know if that clears anything uh, for anybody, but it started to for me. It starts to make a little bit more sense because how do you humbly welcome someone that's already with you? The the answer is you cater to their needs, right? How do I humbly welcome somebody who's who's with me? I I cater to their needs. Uh, You you guys all all know me uh, here and you know our house and you know our house is like a revolving door of humanity, right? We just... Every, every 20-something in our church has lived with us upstairs at some point. Like, we just, there's just always people at the Needham house. We're always hosting. There's always dinners. There's always something. And when we have guests over, which is like every other day, there is a way that we care for them that shows them that they're welcome in our house, right? We cater to their needs. So if we're having somebody over for dinner and they have a gluten allergy, right, I'm not catering in Panera Bread that night. Right? That would be unfitting for the circumstance. Right? We, we, we're sensitive to the requests of the ones in our home. Does that make sense? So now get that and, and, and think about this. If you're a Christian, it means that in the home of your heart, you have a new guest called the Word. And what it means to walk the Christian life is to cultivate an environment that makes that guest feel at home. Do you see that? Cultivating an environment that makes that guest feel at home. Or maybe you could think about it like this. It calls itself the implanted word, right? He says it's the implanted word. So the idea here is that the gospel has like been planted inside of you and, and taken root. So, so think of it like a seed going into the soil of your heart, okay? So get that, that visual. James is saying this. We should be a greenhouse for the gospel inside us. Does that visual make sense? We should, what, is it, what is a greenhouse? A greenhouse is a, it's a structure, it's a space with tailor-made conditions to help what's living inside to thrive. That's what a greenhouse is. And, that, and that's what it means then when James says something like, Uh, put away all filthiness and and rampant wickedness. He's saying, hey, you need to create conditions that help what's living inside you to thrive. That's that's what you have to do, create these conditions. And and look, we we all know this, I think, instinctively as people. We do this all the time in in various uh, aspects of our life. Think about this. Uh, This is what every thoughtful mom does with a baby in her womb, right? This is what I, I remove from my life that which is harmful to the life inside me. So I'm not going out, I'm not partying, staying up all night, sleeping, you know, smoking, drinking, doing all that stuff. I'm not, I'm not doing that. And, and I surround myself with things that will cause this life to flourish. That's what we do. I create a welcome environment for this life that's inside me. I remember my mom told me a story of my aunt uh, when she was pregnant with uh, my cousin. And, uh, and f- she read somewhere that if you eat tuna fish uh, when you're pregnant, that your baby's going to come out a super genius. And I don't know, she just, she was all in to that thing. So like all nine months, she's pounding the tuna. Like that's, that was her steady diet. Consequently, uh, my cousin's an ophthalmologist now. So, you know, take that chicken. I'm just saying, it's not in the Bible, but I think it's a thing you should try. But, but, but the point is, 
she was thoughtful about what, what conditions can I create that can make the life inside of me thrive. Do you see that? She's like, how, how do I create a greenhouse effect for this life inside of me? So, and, and that's what the text is asking us. How can we know if we're a greenhouse for the gospel? How can we know if we're a greenhouse for the gospel? And the answer that James gives us is by doing what the gospel says. We cater to the needs of the gospel. Now, here, here we go again. I think this is another red flag moment. Wait a minute. What are you talking about needs of the gospel? What are you talking about the demands the gospel puts on my life? I thought the gospel is just, just the good news that Jesus came and lived and died and rose again for my sins. So what, are you adding to the gospel? Like, like it's not about my doing, right? Because it sounds like you're saying that, but it's not about my doing, right? And my answer to that is, well, yes, yes and no. The gospel is fundamentally good news. That's what the word means. It means good news. But, but that good news always has its hand on your doing after it. Let me, let me uh, explain what I, what I mean. Um, there's a little catchphrase that Christians sometimes say when, when they're in conversations with people trying to explain the gospel. I actually find it really helpful. They would say something like, religion says do, the gospel says done. The gospel says done. Now, is that sentence wrong? Well, no. It, fundamentally, it's not. Religion does put do at the start. And the gospel does say done. Jesus has done it for you. And yes to that. But I don't actually think that's, that's a complete sentence. I think there's more to the sentence. I think the sentence should go like this. Religion says do. The gospel says done so you can do. See, and that's the part that we often leave off. And, and, and we hamstring the gospel from, from having its full effect in our life because we leave off that phrase, so you can do. So, or let me say it this way. The commands of Scripture still matter for a Christian. Uh, there was a, a pastor who recently said that like, uh, we, we as Christians need to untether from the Old Testament. I think that's a bad idea. I don't think it's biblical because the commands of God, they still matter for, in fact, I would argue they matter now more than ever now that we're a Christian. Why? Because the one who wrote those commands dwells inside of us. His word is literally written on our hearts, scripture says. So it's good to ask ourselves, are we demonstrating that we're a greenhouse for the gospel? And, and we know if we are or aren't by by catering to the gospel's needs, by leaning into what it says to do. So I just want to give like a handful of things to consider for us as we're thinking about like uh, that, that question. Like are we, uh, are we people who are, who are a greenhouse for the gospel? Um, do you take your sin seriously? Right? This was last week. What did we say in the sermon? Your sin, your sin will kill you. It is... It is it is blood earnest serious. Uh, but, but do we trifle with sin? Do, do we wink at sin in, in our life when we see it? Do we militate against it? Or do we go, man, it's just, it's just my Enneagram type, bro. I don't know. It just, it just comes out sometimes. Or, or do we war against our flesh? I'm going to get an email about the Enneagram thing now. It's not, don't, I'm not hating on the Enneagram. But do we take our sin seriously? Uh, do, do, do you... Are you taking time to delight daily in God's word? Right? This, is, this is one of our marks of a disciple here at the church, enjoying Jesus. Right? That, that we, that this is something that we have to be doing as Christians. Does the Bible excite you at all? Like When you come to the word of God, are you, are you like alive when, when you're in it? I'm not saying every time needs to be like you know, sparks in 4th of July, but I'm just saying, like, do you long for the pure milk of the word, like it says in scripture, or is it just, like, the biggest drag for you? Like, these are, these are indicators. Are, do you love God's people? Do you find that you're laying yourself down for, for the good of others? Like, are you, are you a person who is, who is quick to forgive, like, to not hold grudges, to, like, to, to soften your heart toward people, to move toward your brother when they're in sin? Like, are you entering into community with people? Like, are those things that, that you're doing? 
Like all of these things are indicators. If you, and if you're seeing these things in your life, Christian, you should feel encouraged right now. It is, you should feel like, yes, thank you, Jesus. You're doing things in me. But if you're not seeing them, James is about to say, you should feel concerned. You should feel concerned about that. If the word has been implanted, growth should be expected. That's what he's saying. If the word has been implanted, growth should be expected. No growth, James is about to say, might mean no word. That's what it might mean. And that's, that's our point too, the logic of change, the logic of change. Let's look at verse 22 together. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving, deceiving yourselves. So James is saying, hey, let me, let me just make sure that you know what I mean when I say that you're to, to humbly welcome or receive with meekness the, the word. Uh, let, let me make sure that you understand what I mean when I say that. When I say that, what I mean is you hear God's word, but you don't merely hear his word. You hear his word and you do what you hear. So just so we're clear, he's saying, that's what I mean when I say that. It's not enough to just hear what God says. You have to respond to what he says. This is what he means. And, and it's a terrifying thought. Did you know that you and I could spend our whole lives planted in a church and not have God's word planted in us? That's, that is a real possibility, and it's a reality for like millions of people who go to church every week, that they, that they find their bodies planted in church, but they don't find the word of God planted in them. That is a terrifying thought, and, and the proof will be, did we do what we heard, not did I show up and have perfect attendance? That is not a rubric the Bible gives to scrutinize whether or not we're in the faith. The, the rubric is, did I do what I heard? Are these sermons making a difference in your life? Like when, we, when you gather and you sit under the preaching of, of God's word, like are you, are you noticing that your heart is bending toward God? Like is that something that you're, you're seeing in yourselves? Is the Bible, you, when, when you read the Bible, is it changing how you love people, how you love your neighbor, how you engage with with your wife or your husband? Like, does it change how you, you deal with your roommates or conflict at work? Is it changing you? Or, or are you just getting smarter and you can do like the theology thing? If not, what James is saying is you're actually lying to yourself to think that it's actually implanted in you. You're, he says you're deceived if that's you. If you're a hearer but not a doer, he calls that deception. You're, that you're being deceived. Uh, it's, uh, it's American Idol syndrome. It, it, uh, have you ever watched an American Idol audition? Yes, you have. Um, some guy gets up there uh, whose mom has told him his whole life that he's Bruno Mars, right? And this guy is the business, right? And he gets up on stage and he looks the part and he's got the sign like on his chest. He's got, and and the, the thing he always says every time is, I'm the next American Idol, right? And then he opens his mouth to sing and it sounds like a, like a mule deer giving birth. And it's so, I, don't, I haven't even heard that, but I suspect it's a wretched sound. That's what, it, that's what it feels like. Point. That guy lacked the credentials to make, <laughs> sorry, that, that image is very weird to me. That guy lacked the credentials to make the claim he was making. He lacked the credentials, right? It doesn't matter what you tell yourself is true about yourself. That doesn't matter. What matters is the evidence in our life to back it up. That's what he's saying. It's Buzz Lightyear, right? That's, that's the whole plot of Toy Story, right? The, the existential crisis of this guy is you call yourself a space ranger, but your laser can't melt anybody. You can't, you can't do anything, bro. You got wings and they do that. But you can't fly anywhere, right? And, and you, you refuse to come to terms with the reality that you are a toy, right? 
That's, that's the plot that drives the whole movie. He lacked the credentials to make the claim that he was making. Here's the point. We said positively at the beginning of the sermon. Let me say it negatively now. A life that shows no change is a life that has not changed. A life that shows no change is a life that has not changed. That's James's logic. And to drive this point home, he closes this moment with an analogy of a mirror. He says this, verse 23, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and he goes away and at once forgets what he was like. So it's a, it's a really interesting metaphor, and I just want to muse over it with you for, for a moment. So think for a moment with me. What does a mirror do? What is the function of a mirror? Does a mirror brush out all the knots in my hair? Is that what a mirror does? Do I spray some mirror on my neck to get ready for like a good day? Like is that what I'm doing when, when I'm in the back? No, I'm not doing anything. What does a mirror do? A mirror alerts you to your reality and beckons you to change. That's what a mirror does. It alerts you to reality and it beckons you to change. It reveals, but it doesn't renovate right? It, it exposes, but it doesn't exfoliate. You see, right? I wrote that. <laughs> I just, uh, a mirror alerts you to your reality and beckons you to change. Do you see that? That's what it does. And uh, I hear you, Rod. And, <laughs> and God's word, James is saying, is like a mirror in our lives. God's word is like a mirror in our lives. It shows us all the things that God loves, and all the things that he hates, and what he's like, and what he wants his people to be like, and, and, and what we should image our life after, and it beckons us to change into the image that we're being shown. And that's why it's so foolish for us to think that we're scoring points with God just because we do things like attend church or attend home group, or even read our Bible. Like, have you thought about this? Did you know there is a way to read your Bible and it totally be offensive to God. Isn't that a wild thought? Because it's like, it's the Bible. It's the word of God. But, but there's a way to engage with God's word and it be totally offensive to him. Listen to Jesus' words in John 5 uh, when he was uh, speaking to the Pharisees. He says this, you search the scriptures because you think that in them, in the mirror, you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me so that you may have life, right? He's, he's saying you're staring into the mirror, but you're not doing what the mirror is demanding of you to do, which the mirror is beckoning you to come to me to be changed. But you're looking at the mirror and thinking that the punchline is to just look at the mirror, that maybe if I look at the mirror some more, that, that somehow my life gets improved. You can't look at the mirror and improve. The mirror is just like that, that old adage about an x-ray machine. An x-ray machine does nothing but reveal the problem to you. Right? I don't go to the doctor and get x-rayed and then walk out with my busted up leg all straight. That's not what an x-ray machine does. I go out with the knowledge that I got a busted up leg. Right? And then I need to go back in for surgery. And that's what God's word is like for us. It's like an x-ray machine. It's like a mirror. But don't use it as if that's the agent of your repair. It's not. It's beckoning you to come to Jesus and be changed. So, so, so don't lie to yourself is what he's saying. If you, if you hear, but you do not do, you are lying to yourself. Um, okay, we're coming to the end of our passage. And uh, I want to um, spend a, the rest of our time kind of right around this space. And just, I, I feel like I need to inject some encouragement into the <laughs> moment, right? And... The Bible is right to like, uh, you know, Hebrews calls uh, the Bible a, a sword, right? And it pierces. So if anybody feels pierced, like that's actually an appropriate response to, to the word is to go, ow. Ow is a, is a right response to the word of God. Uh, but sometimes we can take the ow way too far to unhealthy places, right? Um, and, and for some of us in the room, you, you can hear a sermon. Anytime you're dealing with themes like, 
uh, obedience, right? There's a weightiness to that that um, can sometimes produce unhealthy levels of shame and guilt that actually don't need to be there. They need to be healthy, but not unhealthy levels of guilt and shame. So I just want to inject some encouragement into the the room for a moment because uh, uh, some of us, when we look at ourselves, um, we, we, see, we see us and we see where we want to go, right? And, and we see that that gap is like light years across, right? And, and, and it can be so deflating to me to know like, I want to be here, but I'm just seeing all this mess inside of me, right? And now I'm hearing James saying, hey, if you're not a doer, you're a liar and you're probably not even a Christian. And I'm just going, oh my gosh, like, is there any hope for me? I want to give you... Th- Three, three bits of encouragement to hold on to as we're working through not just this passage, but all the passages, not just in James even, but just in, as we study the word of God together as a church, here's three things that I think would be helpful for you to hold on to. Two of them are from me, one of them's from James. Uh, here, here's the first two. Um, number one, you're never gonna be perfect to heaven. You're never going to be perfect until you get to heaven. And that should actually be a, a big sigh of relief to a lot of us, right? That, that gap between who you are and who you want to be, it will start to close as, as you walk with Christ. It does close, but it will not completely close until you meet Jesus. And it's good for you to know that because it, it, it helps, I think, relieve us of some undue expectations we put on ourselves. The book of 1 John does the same thing. It says that, hey, he who says he has no sin is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So like anybody who's going like, hey, I closed the gap, that guy's a liar, right? Um, And so I want you to, as we're working through this series, just hold on tight to the reality that like God is changing you into the image of Jesus. It's incremental, it's progressive, and it will not be complete until Jesus fully removes that nature of sin that body of sin inside of us and we're with him face to face in the new heavens and the new earth. When that happens, all is right, right? But until the day happens, there's a level of grace we need to extend even to ourselves. Uh, And so just remember that you're never gonna be perfect till heaven. Uh, Number two, God delights in your baby steps. God delights in your baby steps. When when, uh, my daughter Lively started to walk, right, she was just a, just a little one, right? And she's, she's walking toward me away from Kelly for the first time. And I, uh, I, I remember I crouched down next to her. I got real close to her ear. And I just said, run! run! Why can't you run? You weak little blob. And then I walked away. No, I didn't do that, right? That would have been weird if I did that. What did I do? I clapped for her. I said, come here. Hey, you came an inch. That's amazing. Right? And I picked her up and we threw a party and it was amazing. Right? That's how a dad responds to their child. Right? We, we, I'm happy with the baby steps of my, my child because I see that's progress. Right? It's not regress. You know, we talk about like f- failing forward around here. Like th- that's, that is a, a reality that we're all sort of inching our way to our father. And, and it's helpful for me to have that image in my mind that he really is a, a father to me. And, and that, there, that you please him as you inch your way to him. What a relief that is. That he isn't just like lording things over you in such a way that like you should just always feel miserable. Why aren't you running? That's just, that's not how the Bible talks. Your, your father is pleased with your baby steps. And the last encouragement I, I want to give you, I, I think I, uh, it's right here in the ending passage of, of James, uh, and it's this. It's actually our third point, uh, that there is liberty in change, so the, the liberty of change. Now, now, what do I mean when I say that? Well, look at verse 25 with me. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So I haven't teased this out yet, but I'm just going to say it briefly uh, now. Um, James has a lot of names for, for the gospel in, in his letter. He's going to call it a number of things. We, we know that, that 
the gospel shows up in, in uh, verse 18 when he calls it the word of truth. You're brought forth by the word of truth, right? What's he talking about? He's talking about the, the, the good news of Jesus has brought you forth. You've brought, been brought forth by the word of truth. But then he changes terms in verse 21. He calls it the implanted word, right? We talked about that a little bit earlier, the implanted word. And now he's actually just in, in just a few verses later giving it two more names. And they're really curious to me. Uh, one of them is the perfect law and the other is the law of liberty which I think is an interesting thing to, to call uh, something that we would never put the word law to, right? Um, it's just an interesting way to, to talk about it. And, and by the way, nowhere else in the Bible is this term, the law of liberty in particular, used except in, in the book of James. James seems to like this phrase. Now, I just want to zoom in on this phrase, the law of liberty, because he said it on purpose, right? There's no accidents in the Bible. And I think he means to encourage us by it. Um, so uh, here's, here's what I want to focus on. Um, on the one hand, when I say the law of liberty, it feels like an oxymoron, doesn't it? It feels like two words that don't belong together. On the one hand, you have the, the idea of law, and that sounds, it always kind of sounds oppressive, right? We want to get out from under the law, or like the law is coming down on me, or like, you know, when you think the Ten Commandments, it's lightning bolts, and it's, you know, smoking mountains, and those types of things. Uh, it, so, so there's like an oppressive thing going on with the law, and then you get that word liberty that he puts next to it, and liberty is like totally the opposite of that. For, for me, anyways, I think liberty, freedom, I think coming out from under the law, like those things don't typically go together in my mind, but James has no problem putting them together. Now, what does he mean when he puts the law and liberty together? Here's what he means. That there's only one group of people in the world that can look at something like a list of laws and find them liberating. You know who it is? It's us. It's Christians. Why? Because the Christian is the only person in the whole world, in the whole world, whose worth is no longer bound up in their performance or obedience to the law, but rather the obedience of another Matthew uh, 5.17, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uh, puts it like this. He says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. Like, I didn't come to to get them out of the way so you don't ever have to think about them again. I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. This is profound. And if you get this, this law of liberty thing is going to make a lot of sense. In Jesus' life, on earth, he perfectly obeyed the law of God. I just think about that. Like 33 years of perfect obedience. Like this is a real man living on real earth, being really 15, right? And he perfectly obeyed. That happened. And he did it, the Bible says, vicariously. Like he, he did it for all who would trust in him. So everybody who trusts in Jesus, he lived that, that perfect life he lived, he lived it for you. So that as I place my faith in Jesus, my sin gets transferred to him on the cross, he takes all of my wretchedness, it gets nailed to the tree, and his perfect record of righteousness gets transferred to me. So for the first time ever, I can look at the law of God And listen to this, and not feel intimidated or threatened by it because Christ already kept it for me, right? When we look at the law, that's that's usually what stresses us out, right? It's like, no one could ever do that. I could never do that. That's what I got to do? I can't do that. But a Christian goes, yes to all that. I could never do that. But he did, and he did it for me, and it was effective for me. Such that when I look at the law, I no longer have to, to look at it through the eyes of oppression or, or through the eyes of uh, how insurmountable it is because it was surmounted by another on my behalf, right? It was surmounted by Jesus. So now this frees me up to obey God, get this, happily, right? Like every religion wants to obey their God. Like that, we, that's fundamental to like, what it means to be a religion, right? But not every religious person can obey their God happily. Why? Because you're terrified that you're going to fumble the ball, right? 
Like if that law matters at all, it means that I've got to, I got to do this thing right. And what a Christian says is, he did it right. He did it right for me. And so now when I obey, I obey out of a place of gratitude, not out of a place of guilt. I obey happily. It's a radical thing that it means to be a Christian. We get to say law and liberty in the same sentence, and that can make sense for us. Isn't that amazing? One of my favorite passages in the Bible is 1 John 5, 3 through 5. Let me read it for you because... It has a phrase in here that I, I was baffled by when I was younger, uh, and it's, it's uh, still baffling but beautiful to me. Verse 3, uh, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Stop. And then he says this, and his commandments are not burdensome. Have you read the Old Testament? <laughs> right? You're like, John, I don't know if you lingered long enough over Leviticus, bro. Like, I think there's some burdensome stuff in that, Right? But he's saying, no, no, the commandments of God are not burdensome. And he gives and a reason for it, too. Verse 4, for everyone who has been born of God, we've been brought forth by the word of truth, everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Do you see the connection between 1 John and James? God's commandments, they're no longer burdensome to us. They're no longer oppressive to us like they would be for any other uh, person or any other religion. How is that possible? Because Jesus did the work already. It's because he did the work already. So when I look at the law of God as a Christian, I don't see a checklist anymore to to make me right before God. I don't see it like that anymore. What I see is an opportunity to bring honor to the one who saved me from sin and from death and from hell. Fundamentally different. The weight is lifted. It's not just law anymore for you. It's the law of liberty, James is saying. It's the law of liberty. And the invitation for us today is to hold tight to Jesus, the law keeper, so we can be changed to be law keepers ourselves. That's what he's saying. Let's pray. Father, we love your word. And uh, we love the good parts and the hard parts and the confusing parts because we know all the parts are meant for our good and we know that, that you are working this passage for our good. And, uh, and Lord, we just all want to say that there is not a person hearing this prayer or praying this prayer right now uh, that does not come up short. We all fail as doers of the word, but we, we thank you, God, that our rightness before you is not contingent on how perfectly I do the word but on how perfectly you did the word. You did it. And God, I'm just praying that supernaturally you would just breathe a breath of fresh air into some hearts who are hearing this, who are contemplating these truths right now, who've just felt oppressed by their lack of ability to do the word, that they would have a sense that Jesus, if I trust in him, he will have done the word perfectly for me so I can be relieved so I can be totally relieved to now obey my God happily for the first time. God, would you make us happy obeyers of the gospel? May we be people who hear the word of God and do the word of God to the glory of God. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church. A podcast is never meant to replace gathering with your church to hear the preaching of the Bible. So we wanna encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. and would love for you to join us as we enjoy Jesus together.